Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be interviewing someone that I find is really exciting because he's done the full cycle of building, scaling, financing, and then exiting. I mean, he's done the full cycle twice in the sense that uh, both of his companies have been acquired by by really big companies. And I'm sure that that during those during that journey, I mean, he he learned quite a bit. You know what a what an incredible story, and he's going to be today with us sharing, you know, some of those lessons and what that journey uh, has been like. So I guess without further ado, Jaron Waldman, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally, Jaron, uh, born in Toronto. How was life in Toronto growing up there? Oh, I mean, it's a great place to, to grow up. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's always been a great city. Um, I've been gone quite a few years and uh, continues to improve. So I, it's a place close to my heart. I, I, I love it and uh, was a was a fantastic place to have a childhood. And with both parents being teachers. So I'm sure you were not running, you know, out of knowledge at the house. Yeah, exactly. We were uh, wealthy in education in my household. So how did you get into, um, I would say, websites and you know, developing that nerdy side of yours. Yeah, just happened to be a, a, a nerdy kid. I think we got uh, a PC when I was 11. Um, and then I immediately started spending a lot of time on it. And uh, I had an uncle who was involved with a company or that was early on doing stock quoting. Um, and so he got me into Unix systems. So I could, um, I probably shouldn't have been in there, but I could uh, dial up. Um, and connect and get into this world of um, Unix machines that were all connected. And so from like sort of my teenage years was interested in sort of hacking around and uh, building things, which uh, ended up serving me well. Very nice. And then uh, what happened there? Because you started doing some contract work to make some money on the side. And and obviously, you know, that led into later on getting getting a first gig before you even, you know, started uh, doing your studies at UCLA. Yeah, so I was I was still in Toronto and I was kind of just making money on the side by setting up websites uh, for people. So, um, you know, learned how to kind of set up Linux servers and uh, serve serve websites off of them, which at the time was uh, still a little bit of an exotic skill set. Um, 
And then uh, I ended up taking work at a company which had kind of bigger customers. So this is like uh, mid late nineties, and they were setting up uh, in you know websites for the big Canadian banks. Um, but it was kind of a fun place to work. There were a lot of really smart people called Inform Interactive in uh, downtown Toronto, and I learned a lot there about um, not just building websites, but you know setting up databases and building intranets and um, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, le learned a lot through that. Um, but, uh, left Toronto to, um, go and study at UCLA. Um, and, uh, there was a ton going on in, in California, obviously at the time. So it was pretty exciting. And a ton going on so much that it, it even got you to drop out of school. So what happened? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your, your yeah. parents were probably not very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I put my education on pause for a little while, um, and I uh, joined a company that um, it was it was founded by a group of people that had sold a company to VerticalNet, and so it was going to be it was if you remember the days of B two B portals that was like the 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 hot thing for about a minute in the late in right in sort of ninety nine two thousand era, um, so we were setting up uh, a site to for manufacturers to share uh, their data and put it all online and for suppliers to be able to monitor what's going on. Um, and uh, we kind of like a lot of people hit the wall in 2001. So I, uh, I turned around and decided it would be a wise move to kind of finish up my studies. Um, went, back, uh, went back to school, but I was on the side. Um, there's a research institute at UCLA that was doing some really interesting work around taking uh, location databases and putting them online to understand patterns of change in neighborhoods. So if, uh, you know, a neighborhood is in trouble, uh, if it's, uh, or if there's some kind of gentrification going on or people are disinvesting, you could take a disparate set of databases and overlay them on a map and, um, get a really good picture of, um, of what was happening at the neighborhood level. And so that, fascinated me and that got me started working in location technology which in a way I'm still doing um, but that was sort of the seeds of uh, of the initial businesses that I started working in in the in the early 2000s so then why did you decide to do a non-profit versus let's say a for-profit you know I was really committed to the idea that information could be um, a powerful motivator for change. And um, so I, 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 was, I had this strong feeling that if we could really understand what was going on at the neighborhood level, we could convince people to go in and have positive impacts on, on their neighborhoods, on their communities, et cetera. And this was sort of a time, you know, this is sort of, Bush era. Um, and so it was a time when there was a lot of like, you know, they, they'd come out with a bill called the Clear Skies Act, which actually would sort of gut uh, environmental regulations. There's a lot going on in the policy realm that um, we felt like I, I co founded a nonprofit and we felt like we could bring information to bear um, and have an impact on policy, which, you know, I, I think looking back was a nice idea, but it was uh, much more challenging to actually. <laughs> get people to look at these maps and understand uh, the impact of uh, policy on, on uh, neighborhoods. 
and obviously the 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 idea didn't pan out as 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 you had expected and and there were some funding issues so what what were like now looking back i mean you were probably like receiving some some reactions from investors, maybe like some reactions that you really didn't listen too much to or, or patterns that you could have recognized now looking back. So what were you experiencing when you were like going out there and, and trying to, to, to raise some money? Yeah, there, it was um, a couple of things like there, we were primarily financed through uh, a single foundation that, you know, 90 plus percent of our funding, we, we were a new nonprofit, but, um, vast majority of our funding was coming through uh, Fannie Mae Foundation, which was one of the big foundations back then. And uh, they had some internal competition where uh, they had some people that they were close with that kind of liked our idea and were interested in uh, building and expanding on it. And one day they came along and said, hey, we're no longer funding your your project. Um, but and, and and so it, it certainly was a lesson in um, having a diversified set of supporters and funders because I think we felt pretty strongly like we had a we had we had a good funding source but really needed to have two uh, at least. Yeah. Um, uh, but one thing led to another, and they ended up wanting to build a similar project, but not really having the technical chops or know how on how to do it. Um, and so what ended up happening was we rolled the, the, the team that a lot of the team that was working on the nonprofit rolled into, um, a, a bootstrap company that, um, I started called PlaySpace. And so our first customer was Fannie Mae for that. And we were doing the same kind of stuff. We were taking data and information, putting it on maps, but rather than being in a nonprofit construct, um, we were initially sort of a custom development shop for getting your information on maps. Um, and so that was sort of the seeds of my first, um, my first company. So let's talk about the plant actually coming out of the seeds and, and, you know, proving that there's something there that, that, you know, may be worth it from a business perspective. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we were a bunch of tinkerers and we were really excited about working with data on maps and we were in a good spot because we knew that we wanted to um, turn it into a product. We didn't want to build a consulting company around mapping, but we had a, we always had in mind that we wanted to create a product, and we were kind of looking at it, um, and we were experimenting with certain approaches to like caching maps and tiles, and um, and then Google Maps came out in sort of two thousand five, two thousand six, uh, and we said, "Oh man, that that's first of all awesome." Um, because if, if you remember how maps used to be done before that, you know, it was sort of the map quest model where you get, you get a map and if you wanted to move it, you had to like type in a new address or click on an arrow and it was really slow. Um, so this fast cached mapping that Google came out with was something we'd been experimenting with. And we, uh, kind of looked at it and said, wow, we can, there's a product to be had here. Um, because Google Google as a consumer technology was very much sort of one size fits all. So they were going to do initially a single map that served everyone. And we had this base of customers we knew who wanted customization and control over the, the display of their information and um, the display of their maps. So we just uh, took a gamble and jumped in and built a, a SaaS product. And it was pretty early, but um, we launched it in 2006 called Pushpin. And it was one of the early 
um, SaaS mapping platforms where you could kind of push your own location data up to it, visualize it all on a map, and eventually we offered the ability to customize your map. Um, so sort of an early, very early version of what Map Mapbox is doing today, for example. Um, and how were you guys making money there? So if you go back to when we started the company, 2004, 2005, 100% of our revenue would have been from consulting. So, you know, professional services, development work. And we launched the product in 06. And by the time we sold the company in 09, we had transitioned more than half, probably 70% of our revenue was coming out of the product line. And that's one of the really hard transitions that uh, people make. And I had, I had been warned about it. Um, and it was, it was an incredibly hard thing to do because you have to be really disciplined about uh, not, not taking on additional product revenue and just really reinvesting it all in the core product. And we did that. Um, while we were bootstrapping, so we didn't we didn't raise any outside capital to do it. So it was a lot of a lot of late nights and weekends, and um, a lot. Of, I think I think we learned discipline because um, there were always more consulting contracts out there, but we we sort of had to stop taking them and really invest back into the core product. So in in you know it's interesting because here on on this on this journey with uh, PlaceBase. Uh, you guys, you guys did it like completely different than with your other company, the next one that we're going to be talking about it, you know, now in, in just a little bit with curbside. But the one thing that is interesting here is that you guys really bootstrap the operation. And obviously on curbside, you did it more like the venture route where you raised money. But I guess now looking back and, and comparing bootstrapping versus raising money, especially for the people that are listening, what would be that learning, you know, that maybe you got from from going at it on both ends, and what what piece of advice or words of wisdom would you have to to share with the people that are listening? Yeah, I'm. It's a great question. I'm really glad that I've had the opportunity to do both, and I wouldn't give either one up. Um, the raising money, and and you know, we we raised over fifty million. It's like it's a bit like rocket fuel. So you can, uh, things just move much, much more quickly. Uh, it gave us a lot of things. It gave us more credibility than we had in, when we were in the bootstrapping phase. But it's also risky because you can, you, you know, it's rocket fuel, so you're going very, very quickly. But if you don't quite have mar product market fit, you can shoot past your target. Um, and uh, that, you know, that can actually be really harmful to a company. So when, and when you're bootstrapping, you really have no choice. You have, if you if you don't have a product market fit, you're not going to make payroll. Uh, yeah. The the next month. Um, so really different experiences, and I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't trade either one for the world. But um, when you when you have the luxury of raising a bunch of investor money, I think it's easy to lose sight. It's easier to lose sight of the market. It's easier to lose focus. Yeah. So I like I like the bootstrap experience a lot. Got it. You know, one thing that I'm seeing a lot now is is companies that bootstrap really get to that product market fit. And then when they have some leverage and they're able to control their own destiny, then they go out and they raise some money from VCs. Yeah, I think that's a super, super smart and disciplined strategy for sure. Yeah. So then now going back to, to your story. So there was, you know, when you were at PlaceBase, you know, now you're you're here, like really executing on the product. There's one call that changes everything in 2009. What happened? Yeah, so the call the call came uh, from Apple 
and uh, sort of out of the blue. And it was a product manager up there. And they had noticed us or heard about us and uh, knew that we had a mapping product. And their situation at the time was that the iPhone, the second iPhone, which had come in 2008, had added GPS capability. And so it was actually the photos team, which at at the time was part of iLife, um, sort of iPhoto team, had um, started to get a lot of photos that were being imported to people's Macs or into the cloud that had um, coordinates on it, ge- geographic coordinates on it. And so they were looking around for a way to be able to say, hey, this photo was taken at the Eiffel Tower in Paris, France, based on the coordinates that were there. And that that was a product that we already had up and live, live and running in our suite, um, in, in, in our SaaS product. And so that kicked off uh, a really great relationship with Apple, um, but it, it was it was a it was a great day. I was uh, I remember I was at a Cuban restaurant having lunch with a friend, and our uh, one of our sales folks patched through, and he's like, "Hey, do you want to talk to Apple right now?" I was like, "Yeah, I want to talk to Apple." <laughs> <laughs> very cool, very cool, and and obviously that led into into the acquisition. So so tell us about the acquisition. How did the acquisition happen? Yeah, so it was interesting. So we worked with them. Uh, and we, we, we worked hard and closely with them and we set up the service and customized it to, to what they needed. And it was, um, basically every single time a, someone took a photo and loaded it into iPhoto and it had geographic coordinates, it would come to our servers and we would tag it, uh, with the location. And, um, then it turned out they were selling a lot of iPhones. So the volume was was off the charts, which was great. Um, but also what happened is we were working with AOL, uh, and, um, and MapQuest and MapQuest at the time had a kind of an older technology stack. So they were having trouble rendering, for example, maps of China in, with, with, uh, Chinese character sets or property maps or anything that was sort of off the mainstream. And so we were, in the background rendering maps for them with our stack and they um in the process of google maps sort of eating their lunch were interested in making some investments and so they approached us about an acquisition um which triggered an obligation to notify apple that we had interest not 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 a right of first refusal or anything but just to to we had to tell apple like hey we got a letter of intent um and so AOL sending us that letter of intent triggered us to have to tell Apple or want to tell Apple that we had another, we had some interest anyway. And um, Apple jumped in and uh, got interested and kind of ramped up their M&A machine. Um, and we got into an exclusive discussion with them. And uh, one thing led to another and we we folded into Apple in uh, 2009. Very nice. It was by any chance that you guys say... Uh, um... I would say negotiate with Steve Jobs or not? No, he was. Okay. That was for his pay grade, I think. Okay. <laughs> he was there when we got there, though, which was really exciting. So that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so then uh, I guess obviously this this led you to move uh, into Cupertino, uh, and then you obviously you know got to really experience how uh, a company so big really really works. And I guess uh, out of curiosity, during this time, I mean, what were your your biggest uh, insights, let's say, on on working with a company like Apple that that maybe you got that 
Like, what were those like three that you told yourself, you know, on my next company when when I'm building and maybe like when when I take it to like a growth stage, these are gonna be some of the things that I'm really gonna keep in mind. Yeah, one of the one of the things I remember just being shocked by, and I hadn't worked at a big company before, um, and one of the things that I found amazing and jaw dropping was their planning horizon you know going off year they're thinking about things years ahead um most of the time some some things surprise them but a lot of their planning is is extending two three years out into the future and as a bootstrap startup particularly it's hard to think about six months ahead but it's just like your planning horizon is so much shorter and you're we at least were so much more reactive um so it taught me a lot about how a well-run large company works and thinks. Um, and that, that stood me well in my, in my latest startup experience because we had these sort of big enterprise customers. So just, just understanding how projects work, how things get greenlit was, was really great. Um, the other thing as a sort of a, a technology person was um, to understand how products get developed at Apple, which is really unique in the industry. And uh, you know, if we had another hour, I, I, I could go into it. But but um, the the way that um, the human interface and design teams work with the engineering teams at Apple is really kind of amazing, and and how they kind of push each other to um, to innovate and deliver great product along the way. That's very cool. I mean, you were definitely there for four years, so that got you or gave you a lot of, um, you know, time to to really understand, you know, like the assembly process and and all of that of of such an incredible company. So, so why did you leave? Yeah, it was a great it was a great four years, and like you know, the growth at Apple during that time was amazing because um, the iPhone was exploding in those years, and and uh, I met a ton of people that, uh, that influenced me that I love. So I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but, um, sort of by 2013, I was, um, running a larger team. I, my team had gotten up to over 150 people. Um, my role had changed to one where I wasn't as hands-on with building technology anymore, but I, I was doing a lot of, um, a lot of management meetings, <laughs> Okay. And uh, I think I, at, at some level, had a, a thirst for um, getting back and, and actually being more hands-on with building product. Um, and then combining that with, I had an idea uh, for a startup that I just couldn't get out of my head. Um, and, and so it was one of those, um, it's like I had the, the, the itch to, to explore it. And it was clear that, that within Apple, that wasn't, you know, the, it, it wasn't the right place to do it. So I, ha I had the, the, the urge to build something and something specific that I really wanted to build. And those two things came together. And I said, you know what, I, I have to leave. And you <laughs> I have know, to it's, go out. And it's, it's interesting because ideas, uh, they, they take time to incubate. You know, they're probably there in the back of our head. And, and we don't even realize, you know, that we're kind of like shaping them up a little bit more here and there. How long do you, would you say that it took you from maybe that day where you came up with this idea to the moment that you gave your notice and you said, I'm going, you know, full, full time, you know, on, on executing on this. Yeah, it, it was probably in, incubating for a year, but it was probably three months from when it sort of crystallized 
to when I was just like, I got to go do this. And then I gave notice. Um, and then they, they wanted to keep me around for a little while to finish some projects out. Um, so probably three months till I gave notice and six months till I could really get out and start working on it. Got it. So then what happened, what happens next after you start, you know, you give your notice and then you go at it. So when, you know, what's interesting is when you're at Apple, you can't talk about what you work on. So I had, I had relocated from LA to the Bay area. I had a bit of a network in the Bay area, but not, not a deep one. And then I spent four and a half years at Apple and I felt like I was totally siloed at Apple the entire time, just because I was so busy. And I knew I had this tremendous network inside of Apple, but my network outside of Apple was not super strong. Um, and cause I, I, it's almost like you, you're living in isolation inside this company. It's weird. Right. Um, and so I just went out and started having coffee, not knowing what, how it was going to go. Um, and, and, and what I found was that the Bay area community was just super receptive. You could almost call anyone and just be like, Hey, do you want to grab a coffee? And I want to tell you about my idea. And then one thing led to another and we were very quickly able to raise, um, a seed round mostly on a napkin, my co-founder and I. So how, how did you meet your co-founder Dennis? He worked at Apple as well. So he had also come into Apple through an acquisition. Okay. Um, he had a company called Poly9 uh, that, that was acquired into Apple. And at the same time, there was, a, there was a community inside Apple of people. Apple didn't do a ton of M&A at the time, but um, you know, Siri was, had been acquired in that time frame. And so Adam Shire and the Siri founders, got, we got close with them. And so anyone who had come in from a startup and was trying to make sense of this giant company, we, we, were, um, we were comrades, right. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. So what ended up being the business model for Curbside? So uh, Curbside was ultimately, uh, we had a, initially we had a B, we had a B to C and a B to B focus, which, which, uh, you know, I was warned about, I would warn anybody about, it's not impossible to do, but um, at the same time we were building a consumer app called Curbside, uh, which we launched with, we were also powering mobile order ahead programs for retailers um, with, with a SaaS business. And so we, and, and the reason we did that, the germ of the idea was that we wanted to connect bricks and mortar store locations for really seamless mobile commerce experiences. So you could connect into the stores and restaurants around you, order it ahead and have it ready when you get there, save time, get it at the curb. Um, but when we started the company, the, the state of the art in um, connecting stores for online or particularly for mobile was very, very basic. So we felt like we had to build a consumer experience that kind of showed the way that demonstrated like, here's, here's the state of the art. If you want a really smooth consumer experience that starts in a mobile app that terminates in a physical store, here's, we, we had to put one out there, learn the lessons and kind of set the tone, which I, I believe we had a small influence at least on how that's done in retail today. Um, and, and to show retailers that there's a demand for it, to, that there's an audience. Um, so we, we ended up launching a consumer app, which got up to you know, over a million users. So we, we made a dent, um, but, uh, the main business and increasingly over time was in, um, uh, providing SaaS for retailers to power all that stuff for their, for their own platforms. 
Got it. And it took no time here to raise money. I mean, literally one million and a half right away. So uh, how much money did yeah. you guys raise for the business? Uh, in total, we raised over, uh, we raised 57 million uh, through four rounds. And what was the experience? Uh, what was the experience of raising this money? I mean, what were some of the expectations that you were encountering from, let's say, the seed to the A round or to, I mean, you raised all the way up to, to the B. So, uh, so what were some of those yeah. experiences? So the seed was led by, um, seed was a quick raise and was led by Jerry Yang, uh, who's a really smart investor. And I think founder um, of Yahoo, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Founder of Yahoo. We actually incubated out of his office. Um, right. so we had him and OATV and Chicago ventures, so some, some great early, um, seed investors who were really supportive. Um, and then we quickly got to a launch and our launch partner was target. And we launched in April of 14, um, at, you know, starting just at a single target store in Sunnyvale. Um, but that having that kind of marquee customer on board, um, was a big deal. And, uh, through a former colleague at Apple, we met, uh, the we met the partners at Index Ventures, um, uh, Mike Volpe and Danny Reimer, and um, they they were intrigued with the potential of the business and they liked the it, it sort of fit their investment hypothesis really well. So pretty quickly after our launch, we raised our A, um, and so the, I would say those two rounds uh, were were you know, not not easy but relatively um, low friction for us. Uh, to go out and raise and and um, had the amazing benefit of just working with some incredible people um, and getting them involved in the company. Uh, Mike Volpe was, went on our board and Jerry also went on our board, which was which was a great experience for me to learn from from people like that who had done who had done the things that they'd done and seen the things that they'd seen. Um, got harder uh, the more we raised, so. Um, we uh, ultimately raised our B from Sutter Hill Ventures and Sam Pallara, who's also a super smart, great investor. Um, that round took a little longer. It took, I was about a three, four month raise where I was starting to have that feeling that people talk about where I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on Sand Hill Road <laughs> and I got to get my other job to raise, <laughs> raise the round. <laughs> um, and uh and then uh, our our final round we raised uh, was a strategic round um, where we had participation from the existing investors, but we also wrapped in um, CBS and some other folks in retail. So this and the strategic round was really really different um, because they they just ask a really different set of questions and have a different set of concerns than um, you know an institutional investor would. Got it. Got it. Obviously, the institutional is. Is more thinking about the exit and maybe the the strategic is more on on what's in it for me and a potential acquisition down the line, no? Yeah, exactly. And and for CVS, it was about we were going nationwide with them. Um, yeah, I think I think they were interested in keeping their keeping in the mix in case we were acquired, but also making sure that we had the support that would need that was needed to roll out to 5000 of their store locations which which was it turned out was a very big lift yeah and um, and obviously yeah. there was a, a very nice outcome so um the company was acquired by by Rakuten but but before this there was a failed attempt that you know put you guys almost you know over the edge 
So, so what happened there? Yeah, the toughest thing that happened to us along the way. So Target, we started working with them in 2014 and everything went really, really well. And we uh, demonstrated a lot of momentum. So we got a, they have, uh, at the time they had about 1800 stores in their chain um, and fantastic brand. And so we rolled out with them. We went from one to 10 to 40 to, you know, and, and it ended up at about 150 stores with them around the country. And, um, I had taken care to try to build as good a relationship as I could at the executive level. So I had, you know, obviously had briefed their CEO, Brian Cornell, and had built relationships through the executive team. And we had some really strong support internally. Um, they had at one point sort of approached us and tested a interest in an acquisition and we, we had a lot of momentum. And so we were just like, let's, let's talk about it later. Um, but they got a new CIO who kind of came in and took a look around and said, Hey, this, I think what happened was he said, Hey, this looks really important and strategic. And this is something that we, we need to do completely in house. We have to try to do it on our own. So, uh, we had a moment where, um, and we didn't really know this was going on inside the executive team, but, uh, we had a moment where they completely cut the program and they were by far our largest, um, volume of transactions at the time. Uh, and so that could have definitely, um, killed the company had we not had some other, you know, good momentum with different customers at the same time. Wow. So then how did the actual yeah. acquisition happen? The acquisition uh, with Rakuten came about, so we were talking to, you know, so Rakuten's a, a you know, headquartered in Japan, global e-commerce company, um, but they have a business in the U.S. that was rebranded last year. It was called Ebates, and now it's just called Rakuten. And um, we were talking to one of, to the U.S. group, which at the time was Ebates, and they were very interested in um, online to offline, uh, you know, transacting consumers um, through bricks and mortar stores. Most of their business today is done just purely online. And they were interested in getting into this O2O space as, uh, as we were known. And so we were having uh, an interesting just conversation about partnering with them to power some of that for their platform that turned into, uh, you know, maybe we can invest in you guys. And we were saying, well, we're not, we're not ready to invest. And um, one thing led to another and, uh, they introduced me to uh, the Rakuten founder, Mikitani-san, who I think he and I just sort of had a mind meld where um, he's he's been really interested in how to expand and um, in the U.S. market uh, for a number of years and making a series of investments to kind of replicate the ecosystem that they have in Japan in in the rest of the world. And that's going to be a long-term project, but um, really impressed with how smart and strategic he is about how to accomplish that over time. And we have this piece where we can kind of deepen the partnerships with merchants who have bricks and mortar locations. And um, so it just seemed like a really perfect fit. And there's all kinds of applications in Japan for the technology that we've built um, as well that we, we, we started to roll out last year. So, so it was... Um, it was a lot of excitement. Um, we had um, a good situation because we, at the same time, we had another party that was interested in um, trying to explore acquisition. So we kind of had two two interested partners, but um, was was just really 
excited and thrilled about the opportunities at Rakuten to, to grow this thing. Um, and so we folded in in, uh, in June 2018. So how long did it take from those initial discussions to the actual closing of the transaction? Eight months. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. And, and yeah. how, how did it feel that moment where, you know, those papers were signed and, and it was done? Honestly, it, it felt fantastic. There's an element of um, what I was nervous about at the time. We, you know, we had that mind melt and, and both parties were going in with really good intentions. Um, but I wanted to make sure that Rakuten was going to continue to invest in the technology um, and that we were going to have a certain degree of autonomy to continue to pursue our goals, um, you know, without sort of micromanagement coming. And I had done my diligence and talked to other folks who had folded in and, and I had a really good feeling about it, but you, you don't know at the moment you sign the papers. So you're sort of elated, but at the same time, you're, you're, there's some trepidation about, you know, is, is this actually going to pan out like we all think it is? Um, and the good news is that, that it has, is that, you know, Rakuten's continued to invest in the team and the technology, um, opened up all kinds of opportunities for us, um, in Japan and, has been really great about giving my management team um, the latitude to uh, figure out the right way to kind of get things done and hit our goals. Very cool. Very cool. So so one question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, Jaron, is, I mean, it's amazing the uh, your journey, right? So you go from, you know, starting at a small shop, then you do your own, which, you know, doesn't turn out, you know, then you sell, you know, your first company to Apple and now to Rakuten. So, so I guess if you had the chance to go back in time and maybe have a chat with that younger Jaron, you know, coming out of UCLA that, you know, has no idea or has never, you know, launched a business, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself and why before launching a business? I would counsel myself to be patient and to expect that things that are worth building towards can take longer and have more twists and turns than you initially think. I think back to myself in, in, in those days and I was, um, everything had to happen right away. <laughs> uh, and so I, you know, I think with the passage of time, you start to realize that, um, that it's worth investing in, in the longer term and, uh, that, uh, you, you do have to be thinking a little bit further out and sometimes, for example, markets take longer to mature than uh, than you might imagine, and that can be really dangerous, right? As as we know, as entrepreneurs, um, you know, looking looking back to two thousand four, I was excited about location and mapping because I had a sense that, you know, with mobile, it was going to be absolutely key, but it didn't really change until four years later, until the iPhone came out with GPS. And at the time, I couldn't have imagined that the market would have taken that long to mature, but it did. I hear you. I hear you. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way to reach out and say hi, Jaron? Oh, uh, just um, email me, uh, jaronwaldman at gmail.com. Amazing. Well, Jaron, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. I love the show and uh, really excited that, that we could do this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, 
share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.